Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting story that came out of Los Angeles, California. The FBI is investigating a secret gang-like group within the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. This federal probe came after there were allegations of beatings and harassment by members of the Bandidos, which is a group of deputies in the East L.A. Sheriff's Station. The members of this group all share a tattoo of a skeleton with a sombrero, bandolier, and a pistol. For more on this FBI investigation, we spoke to Maya Lau. She's a reporter for the LA Times. My colleague Joel Rubin and I spoke to several sources with knowledge of this FBI investigation who say the FBI appears to be looking at the workings of the banditos. They want to know the hierarchy and how you get to be a member. They're asking questions about whether deputies have to commit illegal or criminal acts, such as planting evidence or perhaps getting into unlawful shootings in order to gain membership into the group. We have also heard that the FBI wants to know about similar groups at other stations who also have skull tattoos. They have different designs, but the deputies at those stations have matching coordinated tattoos associated with those stations. And over the years, we've heard similar allegations of the group promoting an aggressive style of policing, seeing themselves as a gang or a group that has an us versus them mentality against the community. And so it seems like the, the FBI is particularly interested in potential illegal activities by these groups, which would really more closely associate them with being a gang. The Sheriff's Department has nearly 10,000 deputies, and you were mentioning some other groups. There's other groups called the Spartans, the Regulators. These are uh, in the Century Station Department. There's a group called the Reapers, who is operating out of a station in South L.A. So these kind of groups are known. What benefit does this serve for the officers to be part of this group? What have we heard as to why they're doing this? What's the whole thought process behind it? Deputies that I've spoken to that defend the group say, look, you know, these are groups of drinking buddies. These are morale boosting groups that some of them really disavow the idea that you have to commit illegal acts to be part of them. They say it's about being a really hardworking, aggressive, but like aggressive in a good way officer. And that whereas some officers might clock in, clock out, these are the deputies who really put in the extra time, put in the extra work, go to extra lengths to help their fellow deputies. And so they get kind of rewarded and recognized for being part of that. And that also they might not feel that they get that kind of recognition from their bosses. So they find a lot of morale in these groups. They've likened it to groups in the military. You know, if you serve together, you know, everyone gets a similar tattoo. And they just think that it's a fraternity, a kind of band of brothers. But, you know, again, these groups over the years have have really been accused of some severe behavior. And I think that the question also is, even if they're fairly benign, does it promote a sort of us versus them mentality? And regardless of how benign the groups could be, they have caused millions of dollars in lawsuits. They've become a big liability for the county. And so the question is, how do these groups persist? And, you know, is it a good idea if the sheriff's department tolerates them? How did this current investigation get started? It seems that there was a crazy fight between 
some alleged bandito members in the sheriff's department and some other deputies. Last fall, there was a physical altercation at an off-duty party among various deputies. And the allegations are that the perpetrators of the fight or the physical altercation were some members of the banditos who were picking on people and then others tried to intervene and then they got really beaten up. And this resulted in some of the perpetrator deputies being put on leave. There's now a criminal case on them that's been presented to the district attorney. The district attorney has not yet filed charges, but they said they're still reviewing the case. And from that, several deputies came forward and got a lawyer and decided to file a claim, which is the first step that you take against the county before actually doing a lawsuit. You file a claim and you kind of lay out these allegations and they allege that this fight was just the boiling point for what had been months of harassing behavior. If there's sort of a sense that if you don't go along with what the banditos want or if the banditos try to recruit you and then you basically say no, that they'll make your life miserable, they will direct other deputies to not show up to your calls so they won't back you up. So say like you get called out to a really dangerous call with someone with a gun, no one will come up and back you up. Stuff like that, which is very dangerous. And so they file this claim. It gets public. It does appear that this FBI investigation sort of arose after that. This is not the first time that the feds have uh, looked into this kind of thing. There was watchdog panels in 1992 and 2012 that told the sheriff's department to root out these types of groups, and obviously nothing happened. What has been the response from Sheriff Alex Villanueva? Because he even acknowledged that there is a presence by the banditos, but he says that they got rid of a bunch of deputies and he thinks that the problem is fixed right now. There's been a lot of mixed messages coming out of the sheriff's department for a number of years, including with the previous sheriff, Jim McDonald, and now with Alex Villanueva, who on the campaign trail, and even while he's been sheriff since December, has sort of made statements to the effect of these groups are just part of tradition, they're intergenerational, hazing groups. There's nothing inherently wrong with them unless they're explicitly doing bad behavior, But at the same time, Villanueva has had to confront this in a a more direct way because this has spilled over so much. He said he transferred out 36 people from the station. His own captain of that station actually contradicted him and said, no, those 36 transfers are general transfers. And that he didn't know a set number of how many people had been transferred specifically because of the banditos problem. Meanwhile, people also question, well, is transferring people really solving the problem? What about disciplining them? Villanueva has also instituted a policy that he says will crack down on this, saying that you can't be a part of any group that promotes unlawful or discriminatory behavior. Again, the catch to that is what group would openly or or in other ways come out as promoting discriminatory behavior? So I think Villanueva has walked this line of saying, well, this is just part of the history. If you know the sheriff's department, you know that these groups have always existed. What's the big deal. And at the same time, also kind of saying, oh, well, I've addressed the problem. I've had to fix the problem. I think the the lingering question is whether or not this is still going on at other stations. Villanueva has made it seem like, okay, so I transferred these people. We've presented a criminal case on some of them to the DA, problem solved. And he actually told me yesterday he thinks the problem is fixed. And I've heard from other corners of the department that it, that it's not fixed. Maya Lau, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another crazy story about privacy comes from records shared with the Washington Post 
showing that the FBI and ICE are using state driver's license photos as a go-to place for facial recognition searches. Agents are scanning the faces of many Americans without their consent or knowledge. Between 2015 and 2017, Utah's DMV database was alone the subject of nearly 2,000 facial recognition searches from outside law enforcement. For more on this, we spoke to Drew Harwell, tech reporter for The Washington Post, about how your state's DMV database is turning into a facial recognition goldmine. Agents like those in the FBI and ICE and some of these other investigative agencies, they can take what's called a probe photo, some person they want to find, some suspect in in a potential criminal investigation. They can send it to an official in one of these state DMVs or some other state agency and ask them to scan just like any old search engine for whether that person is in their records. And we've sort of known that these searches were going on, but we didn't really get a good sense of the scale of how many searches were being done and the level of detail of information that they get back. And so, you know, in in a number of states, an ICE agent can look through an entire sort of group of DMV records for a whole state, just looking for either a suspect or a witness or somebody involved with a crime. And they can have that DMV official give them back all sorts of information that can help them pursue this person who may not have any sense that they were being scanned for in the first place. So it's a really interesting use of the technology and it, and it raises all of these privacy and legal questions about how appropriate is it for any one government agency to be able to use the DMV records, which are full of images of innocent people, to use that data to push their criminal investigation. Yeah, and for somebody working at one of these state DMV agencies or whatnot, or these offices, you get a call from the FBI, you might think, oh, this is something really major. It's an official FBI request. For the most part, you're just going to comply with it. Give us a sense of some of the numbers. How many searches are the FBI, ICE, other federal agencies doing? Yeah, and in some of these cases, the DMV officials had worked with agents or officers from external law enforcement groups often. So, you know, they had sort of a rapport over email with some of these agents. And, you know, we have records for a couple states, although a lot of states have not shared what they're doing. We, we do know that more than 20 states across the country are working with the FBI specifically to share facial recognition results. But you could see from, from states like Utah between 2015 and 2017, the FBI and ICE alone made more than a thousand facial recognition searches. So, you know, they would send in a photo, they would get either a possible match back or some sort of information from the DMV official. So that was just one state and just a couple of different agencies. And we do know that the FBI has made hundreds of thousands of facial recognition requests over the last eight years or so from a number of different federal, state, and local databases. So all that goes to say that this is something that's becoming increasingly routine, increasingly easy for these agents to pursue. And yet we don't have good congressional input from these lawmakers saying, this is how you should do a facial recognition search the right way. So all of these searches are happening in this void of regulatory rulemaking. And some lawmakers are starting to push back a little bit on that and saying, maybe it's going too far. In these 21 states that have deals with the FBI so they can scan the driver's license photos, they do say that it must be relevant to a criminal investigation to allow that search. But is it the DMV person that is doing the search or do they allow the FBI to comb through those photos? In the cases we've seen, the DMV official will do the search of the DMV database, but effectively they become sort of an intermediary for that search. So maybe the FBI or ICE agent goes to that DMV official, sends the photo, sends 
any other sort of related documents. In some cases, it's like a court order or a subpoena supporting the search. And the DMV official will write back and say, hey, we found somebody or no no matches found. And so, you know, in this way, they've created their own de facto search engine of people's faces. And that's interesting because the police and the federal investigators have never really had something so robust as that to be able to see the face of everybody who has a driver's license in, in a single state. It's really powerful information. And voters across the country have often really resisted this idea of a consolidated identity database that would be running across the country. People feel that's a little creepy. So to know that officers and investigators have found a way around that anxiety and have built their own national database using some of these states, I think that's really sort of interesting and kind of alarming to to see how quickly it's grown. Yeah, I mean, the scale is very large. The GAO director said that the FBI's facial recognition search has access to local, state, and federal databases containing more than 641 million face photos. That is a ton of people right there. So what are lawmakers doing? From your reporting, there was a few lawmakers that were really angry at this, both Republican and Democrats. Just these searches are being conducted without anybody's knowledge or consent, as far as the people whose photos are in these databases. So I know that the lawmakers were pretty angry about this. Yeah, and it's one of those rare things in Washington that both Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on, at least in the hearings that we've had. I mean, they've gone to Capitol Hill, they've talked to some people from the facial recognition companies, but also from the government agencies that have depended on them. And for the most part, the lawmakers have said, this is going a little too quick for our taste. It's, it's something that local lawmakers have pushed back on. It's something that we in Congress have had reservations about. And yet through these deals with, say, the FBI and the local state DMV, they've still gone ahead with a facial recognition system. Federal agencies maintain that this is an investigative tool and that they still do their due diligence afterward. And we've seen already places like San Francisco banning their local police departments from using facial recognition technology. Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, this is the craziest story of the week. An Asian couple from Queens gave birth to twins through in vitro fertilization. But the huge shock came when they were delivered. The babies were not theirs, and they were not of Asian descent, and those twins weren't even related. A Los Angeles fertility clinic screwed the whole thing up, and now there's two lawsuits that have been filed over the whole ordeal. My producer Miranda joins us for this IVF mix-up. We know that this couple from Flushing, New York, made the trip out to California in January of 2018 to meet with the doctors in charge of the Cha Fertility Clinic here in Los Angeles. And they underwent months of medicines and vitamins and testings and procedures, and they were able to get eight embryos. In all, Oscar, they spent $100,000. And so in July of 2018, they came to L.A. and they were trying to have an implantation the implants didn't take. So a month later, they came back. This one was successful. By September, the mom, AP, was pregnant. In that second one, they thawed two of the couple's female embryos for an attempt. And that's important because when they finally gave birth, they were not female embryos. They ended up being two boys. And they knew something was wrong pretty quickly during an ultrasound. The sonogram showed that the fetuses inside of AP were male. And so the doctors reassured her saying, you know, my wife had a sonogram that said she was having a boy. And when the baby came out, it was a girl. This happens all the time. It's it's not a definitive test. So the parents were assured. And ultimately, March 30th, 2019, they went to a hospital in New York. It was go time. She had the babies via a cesarean section, and both of the babies came out as boys, and neither of the babies came out as Korean. 
So now they're suing the fertility clinic. I mean, it's a huge, huge mix up. But the other part of this is that there's other couples involved in this. On that day when they went to get implanted, there was two other couples on that same day in August when they were trying to have these embryos transferred. And this is the other part of the story now. There's a California couple who was also clients of the Chaw Fertility Center who are also filing suit now saying that our embryos were implanted in that woman from New York. And they went through this whole legal battle just to get their son at that point. After the New York couple had their two baby boys, I don't even want to call them twins because they're not related in any way. The doctors of the Chaw facility flew to New York, took DNA testing of both the parents, definitively decided these are not your kids and called in the other families that had been in the clinic that same day as the implantation. They called Annie and Ashot Manukin of Glendale, California. This is how they called them in. It was a Thursday. I remember I got a phone call from a woman I had never heard of. She said for me and my husband to go to Cha and do a, a cheek swab. So we went and they did the cheek swab and we asked the nurse and said, what is this for? She said, oh, this is a routine procedure we do once a year. The Manukins didn't even know that they'd had a son until after he was born to right. a complete stranger. And that's what that cheek swab was all about. It's a false pretense to get them in there to do a DNA test to see who do these babies even belong to. They had to go through a custody battle because the Asian couple, they wanted to keep the babies. I yeah. mean, she carried them to term. They wanted to keep them, but the, they uh, belonged to someone. But they belonged to someone else. Exactly. The Manukins weren't able to win custody of their child until he was already six weeks oh, old. Oh my God. And this is how she reacted when she realized I missed out on all of this time with my son. All of a sudden, my brain went to, I didn't get to bond with my baby. You know, I wasn't able to carry him. I wasn't able to hold him. I wasn't able to feel him inside of me. I wasn't, I wasn't there when he was born. You know, those first moments of life is the most, like, precious. That's how the baby bonds with the mom, you know? I wasn't able to breastfeed him. I wasn't able to do anything. I mean, it's so sad. There was a press conference that they had, and the father is standing next to Annie right there, and his eyes are so bloodshot red. Yeah. I mean, you can just see the stress on their faces. There's this third family who remains anonymous where the other boy came from. All three of those couples were in that clinic on that same day. And I mean, it just begs the question, were these embryos mislabeled? Mm -hmm. Or when they pulled them out to try to transfer them into the women, uh, did they just bungle everything up and, you know, juggle them around and, and, where, and misplace them? where are those two female embryos for the Korean family? Where are they? Because Ani, the mother in Los Angeles, she was implanted with an embryo that didn't take. It actually ended up causing really, really serious health complications for her. So was she implanted with one of their female embryos? Those are precious. You can't just yeah. create those. They have to be cultivated. The family called them irreplaceable and of course, it's true. You know, it's just a complicated issue. The fertility center has been very quiet on all this stuff. I'm sure. sure they're working with the authorities to find out what's going on. This is a really, really giant lawsuit involving medical malpractice, negligence, emotional distress. This is going to be going on for a really long time while authorities try to untangle this really, really messed up web. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.